Good evening and welcome to The History Show on RTE Radio 1 on this week's programme. Civilians were being shot in the streets and I mean even though they were religious and they were wearing their habits it didn't completely protect them from being shot. The story of a small group of nuns in War of Independence era Limerick who undertook a mission of education in seemingly impossible circumstances. Also, the assignment was to create statues of the figureheads of the movement in the 19th century. Monumental women. We'll visit New York and hear about a long-running campaign to honour women's history in the city's historic Central Park. Plus... The Cold War was always relevant and the troubles. There was a bigger picture. Bigger forces were at play, such as the Soviet Union. Could we have become an Irish Cuba right on Britain's doorstep? How Ireland was viewed as a potential Soviet pawn in the geopolitical chess match of the Cold War. But we begin this evening in Limerick. 100 years ago this month, in October of 1920, four nuns arrived in the city at the height of the War of Independence. They were members of the Silesian Order, set up in the late 19th century by the Italian priest St. John Bosco. These were the first group of Silesian sisters to set foot in Ireland. The four foreigners, three Italian and one English, came to take on a mission of education among some of the poorest and most deprived people in Limerick. Their story forms part of a new book published this year by the Silesian Sisters in Limerick. It's called Against the Odds, a history of the foundation of the Silesian Sisters in Ireland. Historian Dr Sinead McCool is one of the co-authors of that book and she joins me now. Sinead, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Um, Could you start by telling us a bit, first of all, about Limerick at that time? It certainly must have been a challenging time to set up a school anywhere in Ireland. Certainly. Well, Limerick was a war zone and it was in what we would know as the War of Independence. It seems surprising that you would have anybody arriving from outside the country and entering into this world. And they certainly entered right into the centre of Limerick City, into the centre of the war zone, because they actually ended up being brought in by the Bishop of Limerick, Halnan, who was very uh, pro the independence movement. And they moved into the building next to the Gaelic League and were sported by the mayor of Limerick then, who was Michael O'Callaghan and his wife, Kate. So they came to know the, the people at the centre of the struggle. Tell us a little bit about these initial four sisters, these three Italians and uh, one English sister. Well, the story is one that links into um, the Sutherland family. People would know Peter Sutherland. And it was his granduncle, who was Father Sutherland, who wanted to bring the order, he was a Salesian priest, to Ireland. And he had already brought the Salesian priests. They had set up uh, an agricultural school in Palace Kenry in County Limerick, which is still there. And the correspondence had continued over a number of years to um, bring the Salesians to Limerick. The um, bishop had actually met Don Bosco 45 years before so he was very keen that this order would come to Limerick and they were very well known for working with um, in the main um, people who had been 
factory workers and trying to give people extra skills so they could get additional money. So the, the ethos of the Don Bosco order um, and the solution order was to bring the, in the initial stages, the poor boys of Turin and bring them and give them work and recreation and to keep them focused on the good things in life. And so the, the, it was continued on. The sisters were brought over to set up a night school that had been running before and had ceased. And so what's really unusual, and you'll be aware of this yourself as a historian of this period, to think that here we are, Limerick, um, in a period of, of this campaign of independence and these women are coming in to set up a night school when the, the city is under siege and, and it's under curfew and restrictions. But that's what they did. They had a reality check within, though, a few days of their arrival. There was a uh, there was a shooting fairly close to them, wasn't there? On the very same street. I mean, uh, it's incredible to think that they were that close to the action. And I suppose it gives us a picture of of what they were enduring. And uh, Michael Scanlon, who was involved in the the East Limerick Brigade, was chased by the Black and Tans to the the basement of a hotel and he was shot several times. Now, he died um, not at the scene, but later from his wounds. But um, they would have been hearing this on their their first nights in the city. And what I think is important to remember also is that um, the Blank and Tan Barracks was in William Street, so very close again to where they were living. And there was that sort of fear in in the community all the time because civilians were being shot in the streets. And, and I mean, even though they were religious and they were wearing their habits, it didn't completely protect them from being shot at this time. And But I think that you have to remember also that they're coming out of a period where they would have experienced the First World War. It was a time where they had great, um, you know, focus on what they were doing for their vocation, what they were doing for the people of Limerick. And they were very committed, but still very tenacious and and brave women to to undertake this journey and this and this role at this time. Now, they weren't on their own for long. I think they were joined by three Irish nuns by the end of 1920. But where did they move to and where did they actually set up the school? Well, they, they took over St. Ita's Hall, which was next to the Gaelic League and, and people from Limerick would be aware of St. Ita's, the holla that's there. So that would have been used by the Gaelic League as well and would have been used by the nuns as a school. And they would have um, taken another house up closer to Mary Eye, um, where it is still today, um, called Richmond House. And so they, they made those two areas their, their convents and they worked between the two. But they had to take the pony and trap and go back and forth. And Sister Mary Keane was one of those who did the drive between the two places and again this would have been in evenings and, and times where, where the city was in, in, a, in a state of war and of course obviously they, very quickly it went from being the campaign of independence into a civil war period and so it was continuing fighting right into 22 and so the, the sisters were very visible in their support of what went on so at the end of the uh, one of the last executions that took place in the barracks in Limerick in what was known as New Barracks Thomas Keane was executed and the sisters tell the story of how they were kneeling outside reciting the rosary and Sister Mary Keane remembered that they had been photographed. Now that photograph has never turned up in any of the newspapers that I was able to search but they certainly were showing their their solidarity by being present and uh, reciting the rosary with um, Thomas Keane's widow and members of, of the Keane family. Now they were surrounded I think by RIC barracks and army barracks but during the War of Independence or subsequently the Civil War was the convent itself ever raided and if so on what pretext for what reason? 
Well, all of the, the places in the in the centre of Limerick would have been very vulnerable at the time and they were subject to raids because of the link with the Gaelic League, because there was the activity associated with the mayor of Limerick, who was, as we know, one of the curfew murders in March of 1921. He was shot dead by unknown um believed to be crown forces. So they were associated with people that were at the centre of the fight. And so they, yes, they were raided and they were subject to, uh, you know, having to place their names on the doorways in the in the convents so that they could say who was that. Was, there was a story told by Lizzie Nolan, who was one of the pupils and Sister Noelle Costello, one of the editors who in 1980 collected the stories that made this book possible, records Lizzie Nolan's uh, memories and Lizzie Nolan said they were trying desperately to try and see the nun's name on the, on the door because it had their ages as well as their as their names. So the the idea that they adapted to the regime so they're, at the same time as they're fighting this war they're also trying to get representation with the education authorities which was still the British authorities at the time and run the school which was a domestic school and teaching you know embroidery and all of that and so they had to get the, the young girls to pass examinations and on one occasion um, the story is told that, that Sister Mary Giotto had to actually go out during the curfew to gather up the girls because the inspector wanted to, to see them and it it was very important for them to sustain the school, keep the people coming, keep the numbers up so that they would be able to stay in Limerick and be able to justify and earn their keep. And eventually, obviously, you know, the, the order was paying to, to set them up in Limerick. So that it was important that they were making an income, which they managed, which is quite incredible, the numbers of Limerick people who supported them. And I think one of the things was the novelty of the fact that they were foreign sisters coming in that, you know, that, that appealed to them. But there was also a support at the same time with Limerick people who saw that they were so brave taking on this role and setting up this convent and this night school during this critical time. In the book, I know you look at letters between people involved in the setting up of the Salesian Foundation in Ireland. Was there anything in those letters about pulling the sisters out of the country, uh, saying, this is a very bad idea, let's try this some other time when there isn't a war going on? No, I think that, I think what it is, the, the letters are all about the possibilities. The Bishop of Limerick was keen that they would stay. The um, Father Sutherland was trying to, to set up the agricultural school and establish the solutions. So when we look at the period of independence, what really interested me as a historian was here we had a group of stories from another group of women who are actually uh, made me rethink about the source material, about how a war situation affects people who have another mission, another focus. And, and I thought it was important that people would realise that it was possible to enter into a city that was so troubled to actually uh, adapt and morph into becoming accepted local. So so they did that very quickly and they succeeded. And and I mean, today, the, the Salesian sisters, there's like, there's still 62 sisters in the Irish province. There's six communities in Dublin and seven in Limerick. And I suppose having been educated by them but myself I felt that it was important at this time to celebrate and commemorate the centenary because I think sometimes in our writing up of women's history the religious orders and their and their story can be forgotten as we then segue from the war of independence to the civil war what happened the sisters how did things change for them because I know that uh, the civil war in Limerick basically comes to a head very quickly after hostilities commence 
Yeah, sure. I mean, we have the the Irish Feasted Army coming to Limerick in March of twenty two. By the by, the summer um, of July of twenty two, they're calling it the Fourth Siege of Limerick. By the eleventh of July, it's it's very intense fighting in the centre of Limerick, where the convent is on Thomas Street. So that is in that sort of circle. And what we had before, you know, in terms of it was the British Army, our barracks of Strand Barracks and New Barracks and Sarsfield, all ringing the convent, as it were. Now in the Civil War, those are occupied. So the Irish Freestead Army are are against the Republican forces and they're both taking different buildings and so it's the fighting is really intense and, and you know obviously there's there's civilians being killed and, and one of the sisters the Mercy sisters who was part of the what is now the Mary Eye complex and um, was shot in the garden of the convent there and so they were very vulnerable so Father Sutherland came down and they were saying that he was able to get them out of the city because he was a friend of both sides so he negotiated their way out he negotiated their access to Demore Castle which had been a castellated house that was built for Lord Glentworth in in the 1860s so it was built during the period of the Fenian time so it had a look of a of a fortress but he convinced the caretaker that he was better off having the, the nuns occupying rather than having some sort of hostile force and so he managed to get them secure there but then of course when they had to go back to Limerick City because Limerick City then became less um, vulnerable than County Limerick because the fight moved to, to County Limerick so they basically went in and out there may have been one or two of the sisters that retained and stayed in Thomas Street which when they came back was was riddled with bullets and the windows broken and had seen a lot of fighting but I wasn't able to find out exactly the full details of that because that's a memoir of somebody and they hadn't followed up and asked them who it was that, that had stayed behind uh, or had all the nuns gone to Dunmore Castle. Now I know that one of the casualties of the civil war was a mercy nun so nuns in Nimerick were far from being invulnerable. No, absolutely. They're the same as everybody. There's a, they're civilians and the same. I, I think the difference, though, Miles, in relation to the sisters in terms of the Catholic faith is there had been some persecution of, of the religious in Italy. They had come out of a sort of a, the First World War. They, they were very resilient people. Some of the sisters had been in the English province and obviously learned English over there. Then um, Sister Giovanni Martinoli finished her days in, in New Jersey in America, where they set up another community there. So these were pioneering women who went into communities communities, they established themselves and then they were their skill set was required somewhere else. So they are really um, interesting people. Mary and, and Lugiana Diotta were actually sisters as well as sisters in, in religion. And Kathleen Kearns lived into old age and it's her memoir as well that we're basing the story on and um, that was collected, as I said, by Noel and the book was edited by Sister Sarah as well. So it's been a really important story for to be captured at this time. And I suppose the importance is is the importance of the document and the record that has survived. So it, it was a great um, book to work on, obviously, as a as a past pupil of the Salesian Sisters of Fernbag. You mentioned the the personal connection there to the Salesian School in Limerick. Uh, I imagine that if your experience there had not been positive, you would have politely declined to have become involved in the project. You know, I think it's very important to remember where you're educated and where your your thinking comes from. The Salesians had a very interesting ethos in terms of it. They have the sisters who use their own personal names and then they have cooperators, people who assist them to, to do good works in the community. And they've always worked as community-based nuns. And when I was educated by them, they, uh, every Saturday afternoon they had what was known as a joy club, which continues on. And so they introduced people to film and, you know, it was games and it was activities. And, and what I found about it was it was all about um, they were very much as focused on your talents and what you were able to do so I suppose where I felt really privileged to, to get involved in this is because I think that 
it, it was it was a very very happy upbringing you know for me and that's and I know that's for some many people that wasn't the case but I I felt that they they nurtured talent and they encouraged debating and they did different things and I suppose my work really on, on women's history was that what drew me to this was that it was a different story and and I think what it's important to remember sometimes is that we tend to look at the same documents in the the newspaper accounts or the the records of the people who were activists involved in the, the likes of the campaign of independence and so it gave a little bit of a different view at what women did at this time coming as they did uh, originally from a, a war zone having set up a community in, in England and then moving to Ireland and then obviously sister Giovanni Martelloni actually went on to move to New Jersey and did the same in, the, in America so I think what you see is, is you've got pioneering women who actually empowered other women to either give them the skills as embroidery or for entering the bank or into the civil service or all these things that helped people to improve their lot. So when we see other communities dealing with and, and religious communities dealing with the poor and educating people in this way, the Salesians actually did an additional thing and where they were developing the person alongside the education. And I think I benefited very much from their, their education of me. And we're very grateful that they gave you the education they did because we've made use of it on many occasions on the <laughs> on the history show. Um, tell us about the, the, the book and the availability of the book. It's available through the Salesian sisters themselves. They um, hadn't intended to make this as a commercial book their intention was to capture the stories to use the work that Noel had done so successfully um, in the 1980s to put it together into a story and uh, my role was to give it the context for the history and the, the social and economic times so I understand that some copies may be made available through O'Mahony's if there's an interest in it and I think there will be because it's a powerful story and I thank very much uh, Noel Acostolo and Sarah O'Rourke for giving me the opportunity to taking part and joining Lizzie Nolan, the first one of their pupils and being the other pupil in who contributes to this book. So once again, the book is called Against the Odds. It tells the story of the Salesian Orders Foundation in Ireland, including that tale of a group of nuns succeeding in their mission in Limerick in much what must have seemed like impossible circumstances. Dr Sinead McCool, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Miles. After the break, we'll visit New York, where a new sculpture marks the culmination of a movement to one or three monumental women. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back to The History Show on RTE Radio 1. Just want to take a moment now to mark the passing of Dr. Margaret McCurtain, known to many of us uh, who knew her and loved her as Sister Ben, the pioneering historian, educator and feminist. It's impossible to sum up her contribution to Irish society and her remarkable legacy, but we'll uh, take some time next week to remember her life and work in a lot more detail. Now we're looking across the Atlantic to New York City. The famous Central Park in Manhattan covers more than 800 acres and within it you'll find a lot of history. There's about two dozen statues of historical figures within the park. Until very recently though, none of these statues depicted an actual historical woman. That all changed over the summer when a new sculpture was unveiled honouring three key figures in the American women's rights movement. Colin Flynn spoke to the sculptor Meredith Bergman and found out more. It is one of the most famous parks in the world, synonymous with New York City. 
We'll have Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island too. Central Park in Midtown Manhattan is as iconic as New York itself. In Central Park we'll stroll. And within the vast park for the past 167 years, there have been 23 statues dedicated to historical men. Alexander Hamilton, Christopher Columbus, Frederick Douglass, William Shakespeare and Beethoven, to name just a few. There's even a statue of a group of bears and a dog named Bolto. But women in the entire park, sure, they're represented. Alice in Wonderland, Mother Goose and Juliet clinging to Romeo. 72 million people visit Central Park every year, but they would never have seen a statue of a real historical female figure. That is, until now. That's the sound of a purple veil being pulled back to reveal the beautiful 14 feet high Women's Rights Pioneer Monument in Central Park earlier this year. My name is Meredith Bergman and I am the sculptor of the Women's Rights Pioneers Monument for Central Park in New York City. Meredith Bergman is a sculptor based in New York and two years ago she won the commission to depict two historical women in a new monument. The two figures Meredith was asked to immortalise in bronze were Elizabeth Cathy Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. A highly symbolic act to create the first statues of real historic women to stand in New York City's Central Park which for 167 years has been a place of refuge and contemplation with 23 statues of men and Alice in Wonderland and Mother Goose and no historic women. As if the achievements of women were not worthy of statuary, which in the 19th century, I guess they were not. So the brief, the assignment was to create statues of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who were collaborators in abolition and suffrage movements and were really the figureheads of the movement in the 19th century. To understand who these figures were, we have to go back in time to the Seneca Falls Convention, the very first women's rights convention in the United States, which took place in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. The convention had been organised by a local homemaker, Elizabeth Cathy Stanton. She was a well-educated and politically active woman, and over 300 people attended her conference. On the second day, they signed a document of 12 resolutions, making it the first time in US history that women were officially demanding more rights. This was the birth of the women's rights movement. Susan B. Anthony was born in 1830 in Massachusetts. She was from an educated Quaker family and she happened to meet Elizabeth Cathy Stanton one day on the streets of Seneca Falls and the two teamed up, together leading the powerful women's rights movement for almost half a century. Well, their determination and their practicality, uh, the variety of reasons for which they were fighting for rights, everything from a kind of indignant sense of entitlement to 
real suffering, uh, real exclusion, slavery. Meredith came up with a design for these two historical figures sitting at a table. But then a third figure was added, a woman called Sojourner Truth. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Sojourner Truth was born in 1797 in New York, and when she was 11, she was sold into slavery, along with a flock of sheep, for $100. Over the next 20 years, she suffered sexual abuse and continual beatings. She fled from her master in 1926, and just one year later, she went to court to challenge the legality of her son being sold into slavery. And in a landmark case, she was successful. She then became a traveling preacher and a women's rights activist. So it's three women, Sojourner Truth, Anthony and Stanton, working together, sitting around a small table, in the midst of a conversation, and I tried to sculpt it in such a way that you have to decide what they're saying and what their attitudes to each other are and what they're gonna do next. And you can kind of narrate it in your own head, but every time you pass it, you may come up with a different conversation. Meredith's finished statue depicts Sojourner Truth sitting at a table with Elizabeth Cathy Stanton, while Susan B. Anthony stands between them. The three figures look to be in motion. One is holding a pen, the other a parchment, and the third has her hands outstretched, as if to be expressing a point. But to show women from completely different backgrounds, educational, economic, religious, racial, and to show them working together to make the world better, to change society. Why do you think, Meredith, it took so long to get a statue depicting historical women in Central Park? I think everything in the city takes a long time. There's a great deal of bureaucracy. And there's a conservative sense, especially in Central Park, that the park is beautiful, that it has a historic collection. And for the last 70 years, there have been no new statues in the park Mm. allowed. so they were very loath to to break that to lift that moratorium. I read in some articles as well. I remember that people were saying that you had broken the bronze ceiling by producing <laughs> this piece. So how does that feel when you read things like that? That you are the the artist who has immortalized these three now in bronze in Central Park. Oh, just joy and delight. Um, The unveiling, which had to be socially distanced and very small, it couldn't be a huge public celebration, it was really a press conference, was nevertheless an hour or so of speeches and thank yous, and Hillary Clinton came and gave a lovely, really relevant speech. Um, There was a great deal of pride and happiness. The statues were unveiled in Central Park on August 26, 2020, on the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, making it law that women could vote. As Sojourner Susan Elizabeth understood, we are all freer when every one of us is free. Our democracy belongs to all of us. It took six long years, a lot of bureaucracy, and $1.5 million for these statues to become a reality. So the next time you're in New York City and you find yourself strolling through Central Park, pay a visit to Meredith Bergman's sculpture and the first three real women to be immortalized in bronze in Central Park.
What do you want people to think, Meredith? I know this is a question you probably get all the time, but when people are strolling by it, not even aware that it's there and they stumble across it, tourists or New Yorkers alike, what do you want them to think when they look at your your piece of art? I'd like them to think about all the women right now who are sitting sitting together, maybe around a table, and trying to figure out how best to convince probably men to give them more rights or to make them and their children safer or to make the world a freer place. Well, Meredith Bergman, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure talking with you, especially on this subject. Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to sculptor Meredith Bergman about the newly unveiled Women's Rights Pioneers Monument, honouring those three important figures in the battle for women's rights. After the break, an alien ideology. We'll hear about a new book which offers a different perspective on Ireland, the Troubles and the Cold War. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. For most of the 20th century, the fear of communism loomed large in the minds of Western governments. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 shaped attitudes towards Soviet Russia and set the scene for the Cold War to emerge in the 1940s. Bolshevism was, after all, the self-proclaimed vanguard of a world revolutionary movement and its spread was of great concern to Western powers. A new book by historian Dr John Mulqueen explores how Ireland, racked by the violence and instability of the Troubles, was viewed as a potential pawn in a wider geopolitical chess match. It's called An Alien Ideology, Cold War Perceptions of the Irish Republican Left. And Dr Mulqueen joins me now. John, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Let's start in the mid-1940s, obviously the time of the beginning of the Cold War. Ireland had been officially neutral during World War II, but just talk to us a little bit about Ireland's policy of neutrality in relation to the burgeoning crusade in the West against communism. Well, the Irish state uh, has been militarily neutral, but importantly, it has never been politically neutral. So there was no question of the Irish state not being part of the Western struggle against Soviet-led communism, and that is particularly the case during the Cold War. So the origins of the Irish participation in the Cold War would uh, lie in the 1940s when the military intelligence directorate of the Irish army, under the uh, director Colonel Dan Bryan and the Garda Special Branch, were working closely with the British Security Service, MI5, against the IRA and were monitoring the activities of some German agents in Ireland during the war years. They were also keeping an eye on communist infiltrators who joined the Labour Party and they had some success in electing a Lord Mayor um, in 1943. They had some success in the 19. 19- 43 general election, uh, both Larkins, Jim Larkin Sr., that's Big Jim, of 1913 fame, and his son Jim Larkin Jr. were elected TDs, and they had been closely involved with Soviet-led communism in the 1930s and 40s. And were the Americans interested in what was going on in Ireland at this stage, with the, uh, the successor of the OSS, the CIA? Very much so. 
at the height of the early Cold War, during the McCarthy years in the US, the Americans were very, very vigilant. And even though the number of pro-Soviet communists in Ireland were tiny, the Americans and indeed the Irish security authorities were very concerned that the Irish communists were under the direction of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which in turn, of course, is led and directed by the Soviet Union. So even though the Americans admit that Ireland is the most viscerally anti-communist country in the world, I'm quoting a US embassy official there, the Americans were very keen that the CIA should have a role in monitoring Ireland's communists. And the response to that, and here's where the difference between political neutrality and military neutrality comes in. The Irish authorities said, no, you can't have a CIA office or officer in Dublin. But what we can do for you is we can uh, allow you to have somebody in London who will be in charge of, of Irish monitoring, and we will brief that officer fully. So in other words, the, the, there's a formal CIA Irish link from 1951. Now, the phrase you used in the title of the book, an alien ideology, is used again and again by politicians uh, during this period to describe the so-called spectre of communism. And it illustrates the point that our neutrality was nuanced. There's a difference, uh, as you've been pointing out, between military neutrality and political neutrality. Um, Just talk to me about some of the Irish politicians who would have articulated uh, that difference. I'm thinking particularly of someone like Sean Lamas. Well, Sean Lamas um, was very keen that Ireland should join the EEC, European Economic Community, as it was. And he spelled it out in 1960. There is no such thing as neutrality and we are not neutral. He wanted to uh, break the connection in Irish minds between partition and neutrality. In other words, Sean McBride in 1948 refused to refuse an American invitation to join NATO because of the partition of the island of Ireland. Lamas wanted to break that, and the way he did it was to suggest that uh, if we were going to join the European Economic Community, we might have to follow the political direction of the European Economic Community. The uh, member states up to 1973 were all NATO members. So that's where Lamas breaks, begins to steer the Irish policy away from the, the focus on partition. So the actual term, an alien ideology, is often used at election time. So, for example, in 1969, the Fianna Fáil government had been in power for 12 years. The Labour Party had some new, very media-friendly candidates, and the Labour Party had adopted the slogan, the 70s will be socialist. Fianna Fáil were afraid, and uh, Lynch, Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach, used that term to describe anything resembling Europe directed or even US directed protests. So for example, 1969, uh, this is the height of the protests against the Vietnam War. Campuses across Western Europe and indeed the United States are uh, up in, um, I was going to say up in flames, but that's that's an exaggeration, but certainly plenty of uh, tear gas around Germany, France, the United States. Students were killed in Kent State University in uh, the United States in 1970. So Ireland was part of the 60s towards the end of the decade, particularly uh, in the north. Derry, October 1968, Bridge civil civil rights demonstrators were attacked by loyalists in 1969. 
So there was a perception in Dublin, for example, in the U.S. Embassy, uh, in advance of a visit by Richard Nixon, that students in Dublin and elsewhere might become radicalised because of what was happening in the North. So this is the era of marches. There's a Dublin Housing Action Campaign with the uh, IRA and Sinn Féin very involved in. The anti-Vietnam War campaign is happening in Dublin as well. So the times uh, that were there, protest, Vietnam, housing, civil rights, there's a perception in the official mind that alien influences are at work, be it European Marxism, be it Soviet communism. It's a loose phrase. Charlie Hawhey used it again as Taoiseach, Fianna Fáil Taoiseach, in 1987 to describe uh, the Workers' Party, which had emerged out of the split in the Republican movement in 1970. In other words, the official IRA, official Sinn Féin, became the Workers' Party. The provisional IRA later became just simply Sinn Féin uh, in 1982. Okay, let's just talk a little bit more about that split. When you look at that split through the prism of the Cold War, would you say that there was something of a red scare within the Irish Republican movement in 1969-1970? The opposing sides in the Republican split, you had the leadership led by um, Cahill Goulding and the late Sean Garland, who died um, just very recently. They wanted to politicise the Republican movement They wanted to cooperate with other left-wing groups, including the Communist Party. They wanted to agitate on economic issues that would appeal to people and mobilise people, such as housing, such as civil rights, such as uh, fishings, uh, where they would um, occupy a private estate and private fishing waters and fish for salmon. Proved very popular, as you can imagine. And then you had the so-called old faithfuls. They are nervous of politics. They see it as the creation of Fianna Fáil, the creation of Clan Republica, a dilution of the Republican movement's focus, which in the traditionalist view should always be on partition, removing the border, removing the British presence, uh, removing that by force of arms. So they're nervous of politics. Uh, They're nervous of parliamentary politics in particular. And they employ the term alien ideology or even dictatorial socialism or even communism to paint the left-wing Republicans as alien or under the influence of the Communist Party of Great Britain in particular because some of the intellectuals who joined the Republican movement in the late 60s who were pushing this drive, uh, Roy Johnson for example, had all been in England had all been in the Connolly Association, which was directed at Irish immigrants in Britain, but was under the control of the Communist Party. So they could paint uh, a picture, sometimes accurate, sometimes inaccurate, but in rhetorical battles, as you know, the truth can be diminished in favour of exaggeration. So Jimmy Steele, who was a veteran Belfast Republican, he'd spent a a major amount of his adult years in, in jail in Belfast, He challenged the Carl Goulding leadership in 1968 and he said um, one is expected these days to be more conversant with the thoughts of Chairman Mao than with those of our dead patriots. So Porrick Pierce, that's okay. Uh, James Connolly, even though he was a Marxist, socialist, uh, is okay. But anything 
that might be uh, linked with communist parties in Britain or elsewhere is absolutely not okay. And they use that language to depict the leadership as uh, being under the influence of the Communist Party of Great Britain in particular. And of course the provisional IRA or provisional Sinn Féin and official Sinn Féin then went their went their separate ways in 1970. Um, your book is, though crucially I think, a study of perceptions, how the authorities like the Irish government or the UK Ministry of Defence, how they perceived the threat of communism. With the civil rights agitation in the North in the 1960s, the civil rights movement, people's democracy and all of that, did the authorities think that the Soviets could seek to, quote, fish in troubled waters? Yes, well, the the term uh, fishing in troubled waters comes from the Secretary of the Foreign Office. It's important to understand that Britain, of course, is the right-hand ally of the United States in the Cold War, a major player in NATO, its Intelligence Coordinating Committee, the first item on the agenda every day is the Cold War, the threat posed by the Soviet Union and, to a lesser extent, China. So what happens with the civil rights when it disintegrates into sectarian violence, when it is squashed or pushed off the streets by loyalist reaction, by the authorities, by the police, and you have the emerging troubles It's not really until 1972, which happens to be the worst year of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, that you get a sharp sense in London that Ireland could possibly be engulfed in violence if the Northern Troubles spill over. So, for example, Bloody Sunday, end of January 1972, there is widespread anger throughout Ireland. The British Embassy uh, in Dublin is burned down by a massive crowd which had been gathering outside the embassy for days. British and US diplomats both thought that uh, Leinster House would have been next if the guards and the army had tried to uh, disperse the crowds. So the early months of 1972 is the peak of anger at what's happening in the north, spilling over into the south. And this coincides with the expulsion of 105 KGB agents or alleged KGB agents from Britain the previous year in September. So the authorities in Britain are worried that if they've just kicked out 105 KGB agents and the Irish state is at an advanced stage of talks with the Soviets about opening an embassy, there's a consensus in Dublin, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael feel that it's time that Ireland had diplomatic relations with the Soviets because we're going to join the European Economic Community. So we need to modernise. We can't be like the Vatican City or Portugal and not have relations with the Soviets. So we have the common travel area between Ireland and Britain. And there's a fear in London that if the Irish have an embassy in Dublin, well, all these expelled KGB agents will simply base themselves in Dublin and go over and back as they please. In other words, pick up where they left off. So you have a heightening of the troubles, the high point of southern anger at the violence in the north and the actions of the British Army and the RUC. And in tandem with that, you have this move to have diplomatic relations and a sense in in London that the Irish, they're well able for the IRA in the south but they are quite adamant that the Irish authorities would have would be no match for the KGB 
in a Soviet embassy in Dublin. What about then the communist movement itself in Ireland? When one thinks of that movement, one thinks of a very splintered movement, a number of different organisations um, vying for prominence and also with very different attitudes towards uh, towards Northern Ireland. But uh, did elements of the communist uh, movement in Ireland seek to forge alliances with other radical movements, with, for example, official Sinn Féin? Yes, the, the border campaign of the late 1950s was a disaster for the IRA, the lesson learned by the aforementioned Carl Goulding and Sean Garland and others was that economic agitation was the way forward. In other words, be relevant to the people. The leadership in the 1960s was very clear that they were going to go uh, down a political road and they were very clear that they were going to do that with other interested parties, particularly the tiny Communist Party led by uh, Mick O'Riordan in the South, and Betty Sinclair then would have been a prominent Northern Ireland communist. She was the uh, secretary of the Belfast Trades Council. She was the chairwoman of the Civil Rights Association. So the Civil Rights Association and the Housing Action Committees, that would have been the most successful collaboration between communists and left-wing Republicans. Political agitation basically goes up in smoke once the troubles take off in 1971-72. So... You could say that the Communist Party is pretty marginal, very marginal, once again. And the Communist Party does collaborate with the left-wing Republicans in official Sinn Féin, but they fall out uh, in the late 70s, by which time the official Sinn Féin has a very, very totally hostile attitude to the provisional IRA, has a totally hostile attitude to what it perceives to be a sectarian campaigning in the North. Uh, in other words, unity of Catholic and Protestant is absolutely paramount. And in their view, in the late 1970s, that means uh, campaigning around trade union issues, campaigning around jobs. And whereas um, that yields results in the South, it's absolutely impossible to do anything like that in the North. So, yes, they do collaborate in the 1970s, but it's pretty much all over by the late 1970s. And when they ha- they do then have a formal falling out in 1977 with the publication of a document called the Irish Industrial Revolution by what is now uh, Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party. And that document is uh, an attack on any demand for national unity or um, any demand to uh, campaign against the British in Northern Ireland. Uh, Economic issues purely is the way forward, um, according to this trade union Activity is the way forward. Infiltration of trade unions. Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, Workers' Party had some success in this. That's the way forward. So there's a formal falling out and they both complain to the uh, Soviet Union about each other. Now, you mentioned the establishment of diplomatic relations between Ireland and the USSR and the establishment of a Soviet embassy in Dublin. That comes about in 1974. And was there any realisation of those fears that you talked about, that the KGB would become very active in the Soviet embassy in Dublin and would use that as a staging post for operations against the UK? The Soviets, for the most part, during the Troubles, confined themselves to propaganda attacks against Britain. There was no shortage of human rights issues in the North during the Troubles. The Soviets were under pressure from 1977 uh, on human rights with um, the West, with the US, with 
NATO. And so the Soviets um, were defensive and they, they used issues in the north to try and embarrass the British. But that would have been about as far as it went for the most part. The Soviet Union was bigger than other embassies. That was par for the course around the world. Uh, it did have a complement of KGB officers, at least according to the British and Irish authorities. But for the most part, it didn't, as far as we know, use the Soviet embassy in Dublin as a base to uh, undermine Britain. Having said that, the Irish government, Gareth Fitzgerald was Taoiseach, expelled three Soviet um, diplomats uh, or KGB officers uh, in 1983. And that was unprecedented. The Workers' Party deputies in Dáil Éireann were um, quick to defend the Soviet Union and point out, well, why didn't we take action against British spies in Dublin? Uh, what about the CIA and the American embassy? But uh, that was the only party, of course, to, to jump to the defence of the Soviets in 1983. The expulsion of three Soviet diplomats in the early 1980s might be the um, regarded as the high point, as it were, of illegal activity in the embassy. But it was the exception rather than the rule. Now, finally, you write that historians of the Troubles are generally reluctant to view the crisis in geopolitical or Cold War terms. So how does your work challenge that consensus? The historian Michael Cox, who's now based in London, started a debate uh, in Belfast uh, some years ago, and he basically said, why have historians been so parochial? Why have political scientists and historians not looked at the wider picture? So most historians viewed the Troubles as indigenous to Ireland and the, the conflict between loyalists and nationalists, between Irish Republicans and the British state, that was an Irish affair. And Cox challenged that and he used the end of the Troubles and the role of the ANC, for example, African National Congress, in helping the Sinn Féin leadership, Gerry Adams, Martin McGuinness and so on, to persuade the Republican movement, the provisional Republican movement, to adopt a ceasefire and engage in negotiations as the ANC had done, uh, as the PLO uh, did briefly uh, in the mid-90s in the Middle East. And he used that as a way of saying the Cold War is relevant. My book highlights the fact that the Cold War was always relevant and that the Cold War perceptions of British, Irish, American security authorities uh, illustrates that the troubles in Northern Ireland, there was a, a, a bigger picture and bigger forces were at play, such as the Soviet Union, or indirectly using proxies like the Cubans. There was a perception that the Soviet Union and its allies did have a role in the troubles from the beginning in, in 1968 uh, right through to the 1980s. Well, the book is called An Alien Ideology, Cold War Perceptions of the Irish Republican Left. It's published by Liverpool University Press. The author is Dr John Mulqueen. John, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thank you very much, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Duncan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.